Um, last week, um, in the evening service, Joseph uh, took us through the Seventh Commandment and uh, preached first about why the Seventh Commandment is given to us. Uh, just a reminder, the Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Uh, and then once he'd sort of given the, the reason for the commandment, then he spoke quite briefly about what the commandment involves. And so he mentioned, for example, uh, well, the very obvious point of committing adultery, uh, having uh, sex outside of the marriage relationship. Um, but he also described how the commandment includes other actions which would also be considered, um, you know, which would also be grouped under that one commandment. And so he mentioned things like uh, the misuse of sex within marriage, uh, perhaps either using sex as a, as a bargaining tool, uh, when sex is violent or coercive, or inappropriate sexual activity. He mentioned immodest dress uh, as being a way to break the commandment. He mentioned any failure to nurture either our own marriages or to act in a way that belittles or hinders the marriages of other people. Uh, and of course, he spoke about the issue of lust, um, an issue which is not confined, I must remind you, to, 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 to a male problem. It's not just men who struggle with lust. Um, of course, men, many men do struggle with lust, and uh, perhaps pornography is one outlet for their lust. Um, but also, women can uh, struggle with sexual temptation and sexual lusts, and this is perhaps uh, is manifested in a similar way to how men lust sexually, uh, but it, not necessarily in the same way. If you think about what lust is, it's a, a strong desire to have something that is not yours. And lust is particularly a sexual desire. Um, and so for women, perhaps rather than the use of pornography, it might be the strong desire to have a body which is like someone else's, or the certain looks or the certain uh, appeal that others have. And uh, sexual lust might, might come for women more in, a, in, a, in uh, their own fantasies of what they might like to be or might like to be able to do. So Joseph uh, spoke last week about um, what the commandment is and how to obey the commandment. And he said that this week I would pick up where he left off and give some more teaching on that commandment. And so what I'm going to intend to do today is uh, think about how we go about obeying that commandment. Last week we were told what we ought not to do. Uh, it's one thing to be told what not to do. It's another thing to work out how to obey. And so this week we're going to be thinking about how do we fight sexual temptation. And um, my intention is not just about... Uh, uh, warding off sexual temptation as it approaches, because I'm sure that for many uh, who are listening, um, the sexual temptation, the sexual sin, isn't something that's still approaching. Perhaps it's something that already seems to have root in your heart and life. And so not just warding off these temptations, but also how to root out these sins and free yourself from their impact and from their uh, control. I'm going to do it in four sections. Um, if you've got the notice sheet or the, the service sheet, uh, the headings of each section are on there. Uh, first, I'm going to be considering where does the problem of sexual sin lie. Uh, then I'm going to be thinking about, once we've worked out what the problem is, what is the solution? Uh, then I'm going to try and give some motivation to persevere, even through those difficult days when it feels like you've failed. Uh, and then finally end with some uh, comments on what practical action we ought to take in this area. So first, thinking about the problem of sexual sin. And my point here is the problem is within, not with him. Uh, 
or with her. The problem of sexual sin is within, not with him. And my point by that is to say that you, as a believer in Christ, are not a victim of your own sexual desire. You are not a victim of your own sexual desires. Now, just before I go any further, I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that you cannot be sinned against. Sexual sin does have its victims, and perhaps you are a victim of someone else's sexual sin. Okay, So I'm not denying that sexual sin has victims. What I'm saying is that your own sexual sin, you are not a victim of that sexual sin. It is not as though uh, the sexual sin has jumped out and grabbed hold of you and coerced you to do something that you really did not want to do or were fighting against. Rather, uh, the sexual sin comes from within. It begins in your own heart. It is your sin. The problem is within, not with him or her. Where do I get that from? Uh, A number of places I could go to in the New Testament. One uh, key example is from uh, Mark 7, for example. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. No, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, as our link to today, theft, murder, adultery, there we go again, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Sexual sin starts in the heart, Jesus says. You you might contest my use of that passage, uh, that uh, Jesus really is talking about the legalism of the the Pharisees there. Um, I I would disagree with you, uh, but let me take you to another uh, verse uh, which supports this point. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James is warning his readers not to say that God is tempting them when they are tempted into sin. And James actually describes where temptation does come from. James says, writing to believers, he says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, I'm not denying here that sin is a powerful force. And I'm not denying that part of our temptation can come from outside influences. Uh, The the flesh, the world, the devil. Uh, They seek to persuade us and to lead us astray. But in the end, you've got to recognize that the responsibility for your sin does not lie elsewhere. It lies with your own heart. It is you who have chosen to commit that sin. The problem is within, not with him. It is my heart my desires, my loves, my ambitions that lead me into sexual sin. It is not his attitude or her dress or his bad influence or her unwillingness to perform. Now, I would just add, certainly it can feel like you're a victim. It can feel like you're a victim of your sexual desire. And you might be able to say with Paul who in Romans 7 writes, what I want to do, I don't do. 
and what I hate, that's what I do. And so it's no longer I who do it, but it's, it's sin living in me. Paul describes how the effect of sin has, has such an effect on him, it is leading him to do things which, in his right mind, he would not choose to do. But don't take Paul's words in Romans 7 to consider um, sin as being an outside force that is acting upon him. Uh, Paul is describing how he has been made new. And yes, his, his flesh remains, and the influence of the flesh still remains. And that's what he's talking about. It's, it's not me who does it. It's not me in my right mind. It's not, my, it's not the new creation in me. It's not the work of the Spirit that is leading me to do this, these things. It's sin that remains. Yet it is still his own sin. Why do we do those things then if we hate them? Well, one way to think about this, it's not the only way to think about it, but, but one way to think about why we commit sins if we so hate these sins is to see that you are being sold a lie. And as I've been thinking about this message, one of the things that I found helpful that I came across was Tim Chester uh, summarises four lies that sexual sin often offer to us. Um, they offer refuge, reward, respect or revenge. Uh, refuge. Uh, this sexual sin might be a comfort. It is an escape from trouble. It is a source of companionship. It is an escape from reality. It is something that makes me feel strong and worthwhile. Sexual sin can offer you a refuge. Sexual sin can offer you a reward, something pleasurable, something satisfying, something pleasing, something exciting, something to, to break free from the monotony or the tedium of the day. Sexual sin can offer you respect, control, coerciveness over others, perhaps the opportunity to, to play God, to be the king of your own little fantasy land as uh, scores of women fawn over you. Perhaps it offers you an opportunity to seek revenge. You're able to cause hurt to others as repayment for their mistreatment towards you, you feel. Now, if you are caught in a besetting sexual sin, if you find that this is one area which you, you often fall, then perhaps it might be helpful to think, what are the lies that this sin is feeding to me? What are the lies that my heart is falling for? The believer hates his sin because although they fall for the lie time and time again, yet they have been given eyes to see through the lie. And so when you're in your right mind, when you're in those moments of clarity, when you're here at church on a Sunday, you're able to see, yeah, it's not offering me what it claims to offer. It's a total lie. It is no refuge. It is no real pleasure. It does not last. There's no sense in revenge. It only strengthens the bitterness. It does not bring satisfaction. There is no real respect. I'm not really uh, this great king that I imagine myself to be in this fantasy land. And when you're in your right mind and uh, sitting under the influence of the Spirit, you, you see the reality of the, the emptiness of these lives. It's nothing. And yet in the moment, again, your heart is led astray by them. And so you learn to hate them. In fact, you do know the truth. You know that true refuge, true reward, true respect and true justice is found not in a sexual sin, but in Christ himself. 
The problem of your sexual sin does not come from elsewhere. It is not someone or some other force that is attacking you and controlling you. It is your own heart which leads you into sin. The problem is within, not with him or her. And as a result, it's proposed by some that rather than talking about my defeat against sexual sin, it's better to talk about my disobedience in the area of sexual sin. Just to help you internalize the fact that, yes, it is my actions that leads me astray. The problem is within, not with him or her. What is the solution then? Well, secondly, the solution is new desires, not new deeds. What you need is not simply a change of behavior. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you do not need any change of behavior. A change of behavior is the inevitable result that we're working for. But if the root of your change only goes as deep as behavioral level, then you've not really touched the sin at all. You've not really dealt properly with it. And it is possible for people to change their behaviours without any influence at all of the Spirit and without any mortifying of sin. And so, for example, on the issue of pornography, which for many Christian men is such an issue, you will find that there is a a growing trend of non-Christians, non-religious people who see the damage that pornography does and are working to root it out of their lives. And they're able to do that without any input from the Spirit, without any intention to put sin to death just to avoid the negative consequences of these things. Now, if you attack this sin only at a behavioral level, what you will potentially end up achieving is uh, getting to a position of self-righteousness, perhaps. I was able to defeat it. Pride. Or potentially legalism. This is what I have put in place around my life in order to defeat this behavior. Therefore, others must necessarily put these actions in place in their lives. And neither of those traps we want to fall into as believers. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Regulations, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, regulations and rules indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility, and with their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Restrictions have an appearance of wisdom. Self-imposed worship. Do you recognize that in some of the uh, the regulations that people might apply to attack uh, sexual sin? The self-imposed worship. They, they, they might simply replace uh, the worship of uh, the sexual sin and the lie that is being offered with the worship of a more pure sexual experience as being the highest goal. They've not got Christ on the throne there. It's not, it's not God who is their God. It is still some other idol. There is a, um, false humility. Um, there is a harsh treatment of the body. Now, instead of, um, regulations and rules modifying your behavior, The solution to sexual sin is not new deeds, new actions. The solution is new desires, a new heart. And again, just to reiterate, the the new desires that you're aiming is not just the opposite of your sin. Uh, My my sin, for example, is uh, it might be 
um, uh, sex outside of marriage. And the new desire that you're aiming for is not simply sex within marriage. Uh, that's not the sort of new desire we wanted. Rather, the new desire we're aiming for is a desire for Christ himself. To see the emptiness of the lie that the sin offers and to replace that with uh, Christ and the fullness of what he can offer. And so that's how, that's where Paul goes in Colossians once he said that regulations are useless for restraining sensual indulgence. Chapter three, he goes on and says, set your minds on Christ. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. And that is what was going on in John chapter four, which is why we read John chapter four. Um, Jesus is calling the woman to uh, the fullness of experiencing the living water. And he says, look, if you only knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked him for living water, water that would really satisfy, water that would fill your heart, that would well up like a spring from within you. And uh, the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And in verse 16, Jesus changes the topic, it seems. He says, go call your husband and come back. Or was he really changing the topic? You see, what I think Jesus is doing in verse 16 is he's pointing her to her empty cistern. Look, your well that you were seeking to draw water from was the well of marriage. And you've chased after husband after husband after husband, and they've not provided you anything of the satisfaction that you were chasing after. Go and call your husband. And Jesus draws her attention to her empty desires. And what he's wanting to do is to replace those empty desires with a desire for another. It's inevitable that the conversation eventually will come around to the topic of worship. Because worship is really what we set our hearts on. What we desire the most. And Jesus definitely manages to avoid the controversy in worship that the the woman tries to bring up. And instead responds by saying, look, it's not about the the location where you worship. It's about the, the person that you worship. The call to replace your sexual sin with a desire for Christ is not a call to dreary, cold abstinence or celibacy. A very negative sense of those words. A very dark and and dingy and cold and lifeless place. Instead, it's an invitation to replace such emptiness with the fullness of God's goodness in Christ. And Jesus' conversation in John chapter 4 highlights our dependence upon the Spirit for this work. How are we going to change the desires of our heart except by the work of the Spirit within us? And I think on this, our prayers can often be misguided. For those who are fighting sin, it's common to hear people talk about asking for the Spirit's help to help us against this sin. Help me not to commit this sin. Help me not to fall in this same way again. Help me to to love something else more. And sometimes the prayers are offered as though the Spirit is going to kind of take hold of our hands and lead lead our steps in order to avoid us committing this particular sin. But in fact, what the Spirit really does do, the way it does work, is it doesn't take hold of our hands to to mould our actions, it takes hold of our hearts to mould our desires. The Spirit doesn't begin by working on our willpower, he works on our hearts first. The solution to sin is not to work on your actions first, it is to work on your heart. 
and to see that above all else you need a heart that is set on Christ and that finds its satisfaction in him. What do we do when we fail, when we disobey? Thirdly, I want to say grace restores, not ignores. And I'll get to that point a little bit later uh, just to explain what I mean. But when we fail in the area of sexual sin, but perhaps any sin that you are fighting against, there, I think there can be one of two responses, typically. One response is despair. I despair because although I know in theory that grace is available to me, yet I despair because I feel like surely I'm not worthy of God's grace. Because isn't God's grace only available for those who repent? And is this really repentance if I've fallen for this same sin yet and yet again? Yes, I can offer grace to those around me, but I only offer grace to those who show sincerity in what they're doing. And so I despair when I fall again into sexual sin. And the, the root out of it that I seek, therefore, is perhaps a certain period of time where I don't fall into this sexual sin in order to somehow prove my sincerity that I really have repented. One response to failure is despair. Another response to failure is complacency. Some say, well, I've sinned again, just like I did last week, just like I did the week before. But God's grace is great, isn't it? And after all, Jesus has paid the price for all of our sins. For those who believe, we are forgiven. And yeah, it's not ideal, uh, but it's no uh, big deal, really. And so you brush it aside and ignore it. Now, I want to say that both of these responses are wrong. And I think that it can be explained by saying that both misunderstand what is meant by grace, what is going on in God's grace. And I want to say grace restores. Grace draws you back into relationship with the Father. Grace doesn't ignore. You see, the problem with both views is that I think it, it takes the opinion that God's grace is when he just simply brushes our sins aside as though they didn't matter. And so the one who despairs, despairs because surely he's done that for me so many times that he will not yet do it yet again. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, you will see what God says on this topic. There's a verse here in Hebrews chapter 10, which actually we're learning with little children in uh, Discoverers on a Friday afternoon. Hebrews chapter 10, the, the writer is coming to the end of his sermon now and really beginning his concluding exhortations. And chapter 10, verse 19 the, the, the total message of the book of Hebrews is, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. That's the great aim, that you will be brought back into relationship with God. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Now, that's the little phrase I want to focus on here. The conscience is not cleansed. The conscience is still a guilty conscience. But the heart is sprinkled clean. 
And it's like what was going on in the Old Testament when you had the worshippers come. They had all of their sins. Their lives were, were dirty, were filthy. But they were sprinkled and so shown to be clean and invited in. Now, in the same way, the believer might still have that guilty conscience. They know they failed time and time again. And yet, our hearts are sprinkled and made clean. And so we're invited into the presence of God. And so to the one who despairs of their failure yet again, the Bible says Christ has paid for it. Yes, your guilty conscience remains, but that sin has been paid for. And your heart has been sprinkled. You are counted clean. And you are invited into that most holy place. Therefore, come with confidence. But to the one who assumes God's grace and considers their sin no real big deal, the chapter continues. Verse 26, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Your sin is not being ignored when you approach God. Your sin gets paid for. Only it's not being paid for with a bull or a, a cow or a lamb or, or any other animal that you bring and put on the altar. It has been paid for by the blood of your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. If your response when you fail is that you despair, remember this. Jesus has paid for that sin. Is there any sin for which Jesus could not have paid the price? No, there isn't. He is able to pay. Remember, Jesus has paid for your sin. But if your response when you fail is apathy, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Remember this, the same thing. Jesus has paid for your sin. And you've been set free from sin. So why would you go on living in it any longer? Why would you consider it as no great thing when it costs the life of your saviour? It is not something to be apathetic about, to brush to one side. It is something to take with deadly, godly seriousness. Jesus has paid for it. Finally, um, I want to consider the place of what practical steps we ought to take in the fight against sin. Um, we begin by working on the heart. Holiness starts in the heart. And fighting sin is not only done at a, uh, at a behavioral level, but it's got to be done at a heart level. Uh, Jesus spoke about those who have an evil spirit driven out of them. And once the evil spirit is driven out of them, it, it wanders around it in the arid places and eventually comes back to the place where it was driven out. And if it finds that house empty, and what does it do? It goes and finds seven more spirits and comes and takes up residence once again. We can't just drive out the sin. We've got to replace the sin with a greater desire. And because that work is starting in the heart, it is necessarily a work of the spirit. And so our ultimate goal is to allow the spirit to have an ever-increasing influence on our hearts. The most practical thing you can do in fighting sin, is to put yourself in the way of those things which will increase your love for Jesus. That's the most practical thing. But it might not be the first thing you do. And it might not be the thing that you do most regularly, or that has the biggest impact 
that people on the outside can see happening. There are other practical steps you can take to fight sin. Have you ever been to the seaside and you see those signs that say, do not feed the seagulls? And when you see those signs, I'm just scratching my head thinking, what nutter is feeding the seagulls? Who, why do they need feeding? They don't need feeding. They dive bomb you and take your ice cream right out your hand while it's under your hat even, you know. Who on earth is feeding the seagulls? They're not. Nobody is feeding the seagulls. The seagulls are able to come and take the food that they want. But you know that if people were going to the seaside and feeding them chips, the, the whole situation with the seagulls would be much, much worse. Don't feed the seagulls, the sign says. Because if you did, the situation would be a lot worse than it is. Now, sin, I think, is probably more like a troll than a seagull. Sin is ugly, destructive, powerful, brutish, unrefined. Sin loves the dark and hates the light. Sin, at times, seems far bigger than us. Just like a troll. And the sign that we need plastered over our lives is, do not feed the troll. Do not feed him. Now, it's not because by not feeding him, you're going to starve him out of existence. The troll will find a way. But if you feed him, you will only make the problem worse. When Jesus was speaking about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, he instructs us to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. Jesus is not intimating that a little bit of amateur surgery can fix the sin, the problem of sin in our lives. But he is calling us to be ready to make real and radical changes in order to fight the effect of sin in our lives. I wonder if there are situations in your life which you know, if I face this temptation, it is almost inevitable that I will fall into sin. Let me just urge you to consider. Let me just tell you, really. It is worth living without an internet connection for the sake of rooting out sin and loving Christ more. You will find more satisfaction in Christ than you can ever find on the internet. It is worth deleting the browser on your smartphone or installing some sort of filter on your smartphone in order to fight against sexual temptation. It is worth throwing out your DVD collection. It is worth losing the money that you would have to lose on throwing out part of your wardrobe and replacing some of your clothes in order that you can fight against the temptation of sin. In order that you do not feed that troll which is ready to pull you down once again. It is worth the embarrassment of talking to others to get help about your sexual sin. Not everybody, but some trusted friends. It is worth the embarrassment to begin those conversations to help you begin to fight against sexual sin. It is worth confessing your sin, even if you're right in the middle of an extramarital affair. It is worth confessing your sin to another while the spirit is still able to stir your conscience, rather than dulling your conscience with this continued sin, and so walking the path potentially to a lost eternity.
it is worth the pain of confessing your sin to another in order to try and root it out. There are lots of very obvious practical steps we can take in fighting against sexual temptation in our lives. They're not the only thing that we need to put in place. And these things alone will not solve the problem of sin. But if we're serious about fighting sin, we need to be serious about putting these practical considerations into place. When I was preparing this message, I wondered whether I should have started or finished on this point. In the end, I started with the work of the Holy Spirit acting upon our hearts. But I want to finish with this point. Do not feed the troll. Take some practical steps to root out sin in your life. And as you do, you will find that probably what it does is gives you space then to listen to the Spirit's leading. And it announces to yourself, to your spouse, to those in the church and those around you, that you are serious about fighting this sin that so often tempts you and leads you astray. I hope those considerations are helpful as you seek to live upright and godly lives in this present evil age.